to the City Bible Forum Marketplace Talk tonight. Uh, we have our special guest with us, McAlpine, and this is going to be a strange experience for everyone, I'm sure, uh, as people tune in from a number of different places. Uh, as I said, my name is Aaron. I work with City Bible Forum. Uh, we're a national organisation, and uh, we exist to help uh, Christians in the workplace to share their faith better uh, in the context that they find themselves in. Uh, we're going to be streaming this from Hobart, so welcome to you. Uh, welcome from wherever people are tuning in. I hear people are tuning in from uh, a number of places. We have uh, Canberra, Sydney, uh, Perth, and Launceston. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's great to have people uh, from all over the place and that now physical barriers are just going to be this strange thing in the distant past as we get used to this new reality. Uh, yeah, of course, it's a... Uh, that new reality, of course, is connected with the coronavirus. We'll be touching a little bit on that tonight. But for the, for the most part, we want to be doing what we've always been doing at City Bible Forum uh, and helping Christians to think through uh, things like culture and evangelism and apologetics uh, to how they can practically share their faith. Uh, City Bible Forum, we, we exist in many ways to mobilise Christians across the city. Uh, so that's something that we, uh, we, we do in a number of ways. Uh, we, we usually encourage people to connect in uh, prayer groups across the city. Uh, we also run and facilitate events that help people engage with big questions in life, uh, particularly those who are sceptical and investigating a faith, uh, maybe having some sort of ex existential crisis. We want to be in that space. And we also want to, want to serve and be a blessing to the local church, uh, which in part is why we're running this thing called Marketplace Talk. Uh, so, yeah, we want that to be a place for Christians to think through those contemporary issues related to culture, evangelism, and apologetics. Uh, with the live stream option, uh, yeah, the scope becomes larger, as we said. So it's great to have people tuning in from everywhere. Uh, we will be, we're aware that we're going to be competing with the, the multi-million dollar industry known commonly as the AFL. Uh, round one kick, kicks off probably right now. So thanks if you've decided to skip that and, uh, and yeah, don't worry about the footy to join us. So that's great. Why Marketplace Talk? Why do we call it Marketplace Talk? Well, it comes from uh, the Bible in Acts chapter 17. In a couple of accounts, you have uh, the Apostle Paul arriving in Thessalonica, this Greek region, and they're well accustomed to things like philosophy and literature and art and oratory traditions. And what does he do? Well, he, he reasons with them. And uh, you've got a couple of accounts there. Some are persuaded, some get very angry and start a riot which spreads across the entire city. Uh, just this picture of total chaos prompted by the Christian gospel. And then the second account comes later in the chapter when uh, Paul travels to Athens. He heads to the marketplace, he shares the good news of Jesus and the resurrection before some philosophers start to debate him. And what does he do? He uh, engages their beliefs, their gods, their idols in the, the very literal sense. And then he tells them about God in a way that fits with their culture and their worldview. He quotes their poetry. And in short, he engages with their culture and he contextualises the gospel in that way. Uh, and once again, there's a mixture of responses. So some sneer, some immediately become followers. Some say, uh, we want to hear more on this subject. And that's the sort of conversations that we're wanting to cultivate at Marketplace Talk. Uh, where all these ideas are happening around the culture, the debates. We want to be persuading people. We want to be where the masses are, what they're thinking through in their workplaces, in their homes, and with their families around the dinner table. Whatever that looks like, we want the conversation to be right there. Uh, and, and I want to say, Christianity has a place there. It belongs there in the everyday conversations and ideas that people are sharing. So yeah, we want Marketplace Talk to be that semi-regular place to, to share these ideas, think through the hot topics and connect the gospel with our culture and, and the people around us. Uh, 
So again, normally in this sort of situation, as I introduced Steve, I'd, uh, I'd ask for a, a round of applause, but clearly that's not going to work unless you have a, a wild imagination and you can just kind of conjure that up right now. Uh, but yeah, we're going to jump into some, some uh, just get, getting to know you sort of questions and then we'll go through more of the format of the night. So yeah, um, yeah thanks for, for coming, Steve, flying down to Hobart and braving yeah. it. Um, I, I thought I was going to get locked in, uh, <laughs> quarantine for a while, but it, it sounds like I can leave. Um, and it's great to be in. It's great to be in a crowd the same size as the AFL crowd tonight. Oh, yes. I feel like we're, we're actually <laughs> yeah, same thing. Same, we're at the same level. <laughs> same level of crowd. Definitely. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your family, where you live, yeah. what you've generally been doing with your life, I guess, and yeah. uh, what do you do for fun? Um, look, I, I live in Perth, um, so over from uh, Perth here in Hobart at the moment. I've uh, been to Hobart a couple of times in the last few weeks, but lived in Perth most of my life, born in Northern Ireland. I'm married to Jill, she's a clinical psychologist. I have a daughter who's nearly 19, she's studying theology this year, and I have a son who's 12. Yeah. So, and we've been involved in a church plant over in Perth, which I planted, we planted in our house maybe eight years ago, connected with the Providence Church Network. Some of you may know Rory Shiner. And so we've been involved there. We've just stepped aside from I've stepped aside from working there, and I'm now working for an offshoot of City Bible Forum called Third Space. Mm. So I'm still an elder at church, but uh, working for this, uh, what we're talking about a little bit uh, tonight, we'll unpack some of the reasons why mm. we're using Third Space. Yeah, so, it seems very natural, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It dovetails well. And so, yeah, I tend to travel around a bit, which may stop. So this may be more the format coming up over the next couple of months, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm. And then... Um, for fun, I run, which is great, but every race has been cancelled throughout the country for the next six months, so we will run aimlessly for the next six months. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, it's a great metaphor. Yeah. yeah <laughs> there's no race set, there's no prize set before us to run for now. It mm. feels very non the book of Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure you can't do something. Uh, and just generally, how are you holding up at the moment with everything going on? It felt weird. It felt weird going through Melbourne Airport this morning, empty. Though last night it felt more weird, uh, going for a run out along the Yarra River in Melbourne, and there were teeming crowds of young people, all within very uh, strong social distances with each other. Should I put it yeah. that way? So yeah, yeah. it so just not... felt like it felt surreal. At, at the same time, very empty airport, and a lot of people getting on with life as normal. Uh, and it does feel a little bit funny being uh, thousands of k's away from home. Um, and I can only imagine what it's like for people overseas who can't get back into Australia. So a very uh, strange time, I think. Everything seems in a state of flux and we're all waiting for what happens next. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure uh, everyone can resonate uh, with that yeah. point. Uh, so let's talk some more about Third Space. You joined yeah. the team last year by helping create it uh, with mm. David Robertson, I believe. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about uh, what you guys do, what you're trying to do, how does it fit in with City Bible Forum and uh, more broadly the local church? Yeah, look, we, we took the term third space because we, we wanted to be able to create, uh, help churches and groups and uh, people in workplaces or wherever think about what the third space was for them to share the good news of the gospel and also to give people who weren't Christian perhaps a third space, and I'll explain that in a minute, uh, to explore the gospel for themselves. Now, by third space, we simply mean that place that's not their workplace or their, or necessarily a church, but it's a meeting of the church and the culture place, which is and in such a way that there's no hostility and there's a bit more openness to have an open discussion. So David and I put this together as a way to help uh, City Bible Forum as well and to help churches and individuals 
uh, find a place to do cultural evangelism or hear the gospel in ways that they would understand uh, that may not be, the, the church may not be their first step, but this would actually help them in that, in that area. So that's, that's what we're doing. Podcast, video, or more video this year than anything. Yeah. Speaking occasionally now and uh, writing and things like that. And also training churches and other organisations. Yeah. Sounds good. We'll look forward to seeing what gets uh, pumped out. Yeah, well, it, a necessity being a, a mother of invention, so we're going to find out the next six months what that's going to look like. Mm. Yeah, sure. And uh, tonight's topic, a secular age. Yes. Has the dictionary adopted this new word yet? Do we oh. get any sort of uh, royalties for it? Uh, give us a snapshot of yeah. what this new word means. And oh, right. uh, yeah, the pro provocative title in general. Yeah, it is a provocative title, and I do like the term, and I came up with it, and uh, I've seen it used somewhere at other places, and people have emailed me and said, hey, someone in the book just used that term. And I think I came up with it, but I don't think I'll get any royalties for it. And it's a spin on um, the whole title, A Secular Age, is a spin on Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age. And uh, what he was exploring was, what does the world look like when the transcendent bit, the bit without God's taken off? And uh, he wrote that in 2000. And as I spin it forward a couple of decades, I think, Sexuality has become almost the religion of the secular age. How you do sex, who you think you are sexually in, in terms of gender, is so steeped in the narrative of what it means to be a modern Western, especially Western human being, that it felt like it had uh, it dovetailed very nicely with that whole idea of a secular age. So yeah. that's why, I, and it seemed to take off, and uh, it, it's become this uh, sort of a... For me, anyway, when I think about it, it's, got a, it's a tip of a, an iceberg that explains a lot of things, <laughs> which we'll explore some of those tonight. That's right. Yeah, yeah. we're we'll getting into it more tonight. Yeah. So looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, we're, we'll go through some of the format now, uh, and then we'll, we'll keep this conversation going. Um, so yeah, we're going to do the bulk of this workshop uh, now, and it will take the, the kind of conversational style interview thing. Uh, you can text in questions at any time. So uh, whether you're watching it from, I think, Facebook or uh, YouTube, both of them should have my number available. Uh, either on there, but definitely in the email that you would have got which provided the link. So, uh, yeah, presumably if you're watching this, that means you've got the email and it will be in that. So, uh, yeah, you can do that. Uh, texting questions at any time. Um, we're going to have a few kind of uh, breaks as we go uh, and there'll be opportunities to, to kind of interact. Uh, that's something that we, in, in terms of the way that Marketplace Talk has been designed, we, we've always wanted them to be interactive workshops. So, uh, yeah, we love getting questions and interruptions and just fleshing out ideas. That's, that's the whole purpose of it. So. Uh, yeah, text them through at any time. I can't guarantee that we'll get through all of them uh, that might come in, but throughout the night we will have those moments to, to listen, to, uh, to hear from some of our listeners and streamers, I guess. Uh, questions can range from being kind of razor sharp focused on the topic, following up directly uh, on something Steve might have said, but you might have more general questions as well, maybe something, uh, an experience you've had or a particular conversation that just keeps coming up for you. Uh, feel free to, to fire it through and there's probably a way of uh, connecting it with what Steve yeah. is already talking about. Uh, yeah, so uh, you can do that. Uh, as I said, we, we might not get through them all, but we would love to interact with you. That's that's the, the whole purpose of this event, and uh, like yeah, we want to be doing community together. It's not uh, this is not just a, a monologue or even a dialogue between us two, but we want it to be for everyone's yeah. benefit. Um, yeah, we uh, we hope everyone's taking the precautions they need for coronavirus as well. Um, as you can see, we have the, the hand sanitizer here. We have a, the table the size of a small child, maybe a primary school age kid. It's 1.5 metres. Yeah, sure. so roughly two Stephen McAlpine beards, something like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, obviously stay safe over this time as well. Uh, 
For now, let's get into Steve's materials. So uh, when you receive the link, you also would have got a link to download the PowerPoint slide that will be uh, in the background. So we, we tried to get it all into video, but we haven't really been able to do that. But uh, the, you're not missing too much, um, but it is great to go through at the same time. There's some quotes that, um, and references that Steve will have. So if you're able to open that up on a laptop or a mobile device, uh, yeah, it's worth doing. Uh, that, that will kind of help the flow of the night mm. and you can follow along roughly where we're up to. Uh, so yeah, do that on your, your laptops, mobile devices, and follow along if you wish. Uh, for those who are streaming on Chromecast or Apple TV or whatever, you, you might not be able to access it, but uh, yeah, rest assured you'll still be fine. You should be able to follow along just fine. How are we doing for time? Let's see. We have quite some time. So we're not, we're not exactly sure how the timing of all this is going to go. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to be winging it as much as any other uh, live web thing at the moment. Um, but. The, the aim will be to finish somewhere probably between 8.30 and 9 o'clock tonight. Um, and yeah, the more questions come in, the longer we can go. Um, but yeah, we will finish, I think, 9 o'clock at the latest. And if you're living in Perth, that's 6 o'clock, just to let you know. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Don't I'll hang let's, around for us for 5 or 6 hours. I'll let's do all the Perth timeline trans <laughs> translations. That is just going to do my head in all night. Yes. So I'm, I'm going to be talking Hobart time. And if you're not from Hobart or in the same time zone, that's just too bad, I'm sorry. For now, let's get into it. Mm. Um, so I might give you the clicker. Ah, uh, yeah, cool. Because you'll be you'll be taking it from here for the most part. Let's get into it, Steve. Um, you're going to discuss a bit about what has taken place in Western societies in the modern world. So uh, my first question uh, is, how have we moved from being a religious culture to a secular culture? Can you just uh, talk talk us through some of the history? Yeah, that's going on? that's a, that's a good way of putting it. How do you move from? It's interesting that the word secular is a religious word. So uh, in the sense that there was the sacred, which was uh, the cloisters where you know, the priests and the, and the nuns and the monks were. And then there was the secular. Was the, they, they pitted these two worlds against each other in the sense that they held each other in tension and they were part of the same world. Now the term has got to mean anything that is not religious, that religious is privatised and secular is the real world and the way we do things and the way it is. But what I'd say is that if you take the religious bit out of it, what you get is that secular kind of spins off without any gravity to hold it. And what you're finding in our secular age is that we thought we would get this very strongly secular, well thought out, confident world. But what it feels like is a satellite that's lost its planet. Mm. It's spinning off into off orbit somewhere. And so what happens is you, you start to define secular and then it, my goodness, it doesn't seem to quite define the way I expected, and the world doesn't look quite the way I expected. It's splintered it in different directions. Yeah, there's yeah. all these things being pulled in different directions. And I think that's crucial to understanding what secularism is doing to people at the moment. It feels a very fractured age. Uh, when you say a secular age, you think of something monolithic, but it doesn't feel monolithic. And it certainly doesn't now. Uh, it's just, the things that are happening now in our the virus and things like that are exposing fractures and tribalism in ways that perhaps good times don't in the same way. And so uh, that was the beginning, I think, of thinking about this whole secular and sexual thing. But you'll notice uh, there's a slide that um, has a picture from the 2016 census. And uh, I'll figure out clicking on that. <laughs> um, if you've got notes there, have a look at it. It says um, it's from the 2016 census in Australia when it talks about the, you know, you, you tick on the on the question on the um, on the census what religion you are, and if you you would think I'm a person who doesn't go to the Anglican Church, 
but I tick Anglican because that's what we are. In 2016, that shifted to the point that no religion was central to, you know, at the top of the, the pile. And the question was not religious anymore. Not not religious, but not religious anymore. And that's a story. Not religious is just a statement, but not religious anymore. Because yeah, I remember a time when we were religious. Mm. So Harold says, you know, 20 odd years ago to Madge, when they're filling out the census, hey Madge, what religion are we again? She goes, I think it's, you know, Presbyterius, <laughs> whatever she says. And he ticks that. Now, not religious anymore. And you can tick no religion. And behind the anymore bit is a whole narrative of why we're not religious. Yeah, anymore. it's quite unique, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's not a statement about nothingness. It's a statement about having moved on from something. And part of the secular narrative is certainly a narrative of progress, mm. a narrative of moving towards something. And in that sense, it's still a very Christian narrative. It's got, it's, the rest of the world in history hasn't necessarily seen history as moving in a direction. It's a very Judeo-Christian understanding. So it's kind of jettisoned the sacred bit and is moving towards some new story without the foundational story that it was built upon. Yeah. That's the key, I think, to understanding. Quite, quite similar, I guess, to postmodernism and the rejection of meta-narratives. Uh, all these other ones can come in. And, that, and come in they did. And, but also the fact that, in one sense, even those rejections are rejecting something, so they're defined by what they're against. And mm. Charles Taylor is the, the classic book that he wrote, A Secular Age. Have you challenged everyone? To... I challenged everyone to read that recently. If you haven't read A Secular Age, by the time this virus goes away, um, seriously. And it's on your shelf, because yeah. it's uh, probably about 100 bucks brand new. Yeah. So. There's a lot of paper in it. If you do run out of paper for any purpose whatsoever in the next couple of months, there's a lot of paper in A Secular Age. But anyway, Charles Taylor begins that book by saying, uh, why was it in 1500 it was almost impossible uh, to not to believe in God? Or, and now it's almost like 500 years later, um, virtually no one is believing in God in the way that we understand him to be anyway, or in the way that he has a thick presence in the culture. And he calls uh, what we exist in now a social imaginary. He says the secular age isn't just some sort of neutral understanding of the world. It's actually a social, meaning, you know, we think of the word social distancing at the moment. It means everyone <laughs> has to keep distance. But a social imaginary means an imagination, a way of looking at the world that is social, that everyone buys into, that creates a very strong plausibility structure to it. So it's the given. Whereas 1500, the given was God. Now the given is you have to argue for God into a secular social imaginary. How we imagine the world to be is what he means by social imaginary. And the default at the moment is you argue from a position of secular mm. towards something, if you believe it. And that is odd in both history and geography. It's not as if everyone around the world, even now, has a secular social imaginary. Mm. The majority don't, but the West certainly does at this yeah, point. We've adopted that. Yeah. So that, that's, I think, how you would uh, try to define it. Now, I think the title of this uh, talk was to do with how the, uh, you know, the gospel is dangerous as well as no longer good news. But you have to get embedded before you think about that question, mm. why it's getting there. 
what's going on that's brought that issue to the surface? Why is it hard to bring the gospel to bear in our culture at the moment? And you've got to understand the underpinnings of this secular age, I think, to understand that. Yeah, great. And then um, that'll move us to the, <clears throat> the second part here. Um, thinking about change and why. Uh, just, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of change has taken place and it's caught many people by surprise. And, mm-hmm. and the, the church has been quite reactive in many ways, at least been seen to be very reactive. Yeah. Um, so what, what has all this meant for the church and for Christians as individuals? Uh, what, in a nutshell, why is sharing the gospel, gospel much harder? Yes. Yeah. Well, let's back it up a little bit because I think uh, one of the things it is, we are in a period of rapid discontinuous change. That's a term that I think dealt strongly with, um, you know, culturally we're there, but we're obviously there socially because of all the things that are happening at the moment. Um, but it didn't happen overnight. You know, people link it back to the... Um, the sexual revolution, which was itself a flowering of a previous time where uh, individualism, the, the self as the centre of, of meaning, things like that, came to the fore. And uh, my daughter has a, a record player, uh, she only buys vinyl, and her, um, you know, anything by John Lennon, George Harrison, or the Beatles, and uh, Super Jim Stevens, actually, as well. So, but John Lennon's album from, you know, Imagine, has those lines, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. It's actually not that easy no. to imagine a social imaginary other than one with heaven. It's not easy if you try. You have to throw a lot of time, money, effort, philosophical thinking to imagine it away. And I think it's the last 30 to 40 years that we've actually managed to suppress that, uh, that idea of heaven much more readily at the same time that we've come into rapid discontinuous change. So you have this world in which there seems to be a state of flux, but there isn't actually uh, anything strong to anchor anything onto. And I think that's part of the problem, that we've realised that uh, rapid discontinuous change is fine, um, but if you think that the roller coaster safety brakes or the safety rails aren't there, that's how people are feeling. You only have to say that the last few weeks, the anxiety levels have gone through the roof. It shows that rapid discontinuous change and a social imaginary without anything at the heaven or at the top is great in peacetime. But when things get hairy, uh, people want something a little bit more, I think, to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah, Do you you get what I'm saying about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. one of the phrases that Charles Taylor uses is the imminent frame. Is that yes. kind of... Yeah, that, that is exactly what it is. The imminent frame, this is all that matters. And um, there was the HBO series, was it, I don't know if it was HBO, but uh, Under the Dome, or the Dome. It feels like we should all be under a dome at the moment, where this invisible dome comes over this town called Chester's Mill. And it, everything inside that dome is all they have. Everything outside is inaccessible to them. And in one sense, we live in a world that feels like everything inside the dome is reality. Whether or not there is anything outside the dome of this imminent frame that we live in, whether there is or not is is immaterial because we can't access it. And so you start to live in this imminent frame where everything inside is what matters. And uh, that's the challenge to, to the gospel first and foremost because we don't believe that. The very first words of the Bible in the beginning, God, and then it goes from there. And God's interest is in the earth, what's going on. It's definitely a break in the imminent frame. Something breaks through it. Day one, you know, line one of the Bible. And that's the opposite of what we'd be, uh, most, many people in the, in the secular world think today. 
even if they have a view of heaven, it doesn't impact that imminent frame in the same way. Yeah, and it's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it, that um, the imminent frame, and then you've got the, the notion of transcendence as well, which, as Christians, yeah. I mean, the way that you can describe God is both of those things. Yes, um, that's right, because uh, as we'll find out as we talk about this, that someone breaks through transcendence into the now, <laughs> breaks through the dome. That's the gospel story is someone comes from outside of what's in the dome and breaks into that. And uh, John's gospel in particular talks about, you know, no one can know what's going on in heaven except the one who's come from heaven to earth. And go, wow, that broke through the dome. Mm. <laughs> and it's strongly. Yeah. So that's the background, I think, for what I, I've been thinking about the pressure that this puts on church, which yeah. we can go into if you, you know, we can talk about that. Or... Yeah, well, let's keep fleshing it out. Um, so the, the question there, <clears throat> why is sharing the gospel much harder? What does that look like practically? Yeah, because you've got to land this on something. Well, I, I, I'll crank it back a little bit. And uh, we're about 15 years ago, uh, working in a church, I was thinking it seems much harder to reach people for the gospel than it did even 10 years before that. Um, when I first started in ministry. So 25 years ago, starting out in ministry, it felt like conversations could still be had, but in different ways. And I was thinking 15 years ago, what's going on? And I walked into Baker's Delight. Uh, I guess you have Baker's Delight around Australia, and uh, whether or not they'll uh, last much longer in the current climate. But there was a sign in the window, this was on a Sunday too, it said, Baker's Delight is open Sundays, whatever happened to the day of rest. Yeah, what did happen to the day of rest? It sort of upped and left without me thinking about it. Um, a bit like all those other little Christian bits on the culture. I remember the day of prayer at school, the Lord's Prayer in a government school, and things like that, for assembly. As much as you would say, welcome to country these days, you would say the Lord's Prayer. That had all gone. So I thought, yeah, what happened to the day of rest? So I went in and asked for the poster that had it on. I've still got that at home. I laminated this poster. But I thought at the time, Christianity's fading from the radar, um, it's become irrelevant, and the goal of the church is to make it relevant again. So maybe that's what we need to do, is get people interested in the story of, again, and talking about Christianity, because sooner it's just going to sink below the surface, and whatever happened to the day of rest, that'll be the conversation. Yeah, it, could I have thought 15 years later that it was front page news about what the Prime Minister or the Leader of the Opposition thought last year about who would end up in hell and who would not. That just seems like... Yeah, it's quite a turn. It's a it? huge turn. No one saw that. Um, or some people might have seen it, but we weren't shaping ourselves as Christians towards what that actually brought up, mm. how to deal with those sorts of things. Yeah, there's not a positive fondness. No, there wasn't. It's exactly right. It wasn't like, yeah, could you tell me about that relevant thing? Tell me about Christianity. Why don't you make it relevant for me again? And so the word that um, Mark Sayers uses in his book, Disappearing Church, is he talks about from cultural relevance to gospel resilience. He said, what we need now is gospel resilience in our culture as Christians. And the illustration I've thought of as I've thought about this movie, shows my age, back in the 90s, Falling Down with Michael Douglas in it. And he's a middle-class, middle-aged white bloke who's lost his job, who's angry at things in Los Angeles, and just he's angry about everything. And one day his car is in a traffic jam, he gets out, storms out, and he just creates havoc. Finds some guns, as you do, oh, probably can't find any at the moment, but finds these guns, 
does all these crazy things, goes into the burger shop, and the burger that he buys doesn't look like the angry burger. He's angry. He's, yeah, he's not, a, he's not a happy man. Eventually, they, trade, they track him down. He's doing stupid things, and they've got him on Venice Pier. You know, They've got a gun pointed at him like this. Come in, there's good people. They can come and talk to you. And then he just sort of snaps. He goes, you mean I'm the bad guy? How did that happen? I think Christians feel that a little bit. You mean we're the bad guys now? It's not even like we're neutral. It's the things that we believe are not seen as part of the solution to the culture in some respects, especially in the areas of sexuality, especially in the areas of identity and freedom and who I am as a person. Those things are seen as bad things, as dangerous things. Yeah. And I've written up with great glee, yeah. up until last week anyway, <laughs> in front pages of our newspapers that somehow... We're not the good guy anymore. And that can cause uh, despair in Christians or anger. And I don't think either of those are good responses, but it's certainly the case that we're no longer seen as the, the go-to solution for what might be wrong with the culture. We're part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. We're no longer the, the social conscience. No, and we're not the go-to person with a seat at the table that gets to say what we want to say because we're Christian anymore. It's a, it's, the playing field is, is not even level. We're a little bit further down because we were part of the problem that got us here. Mm. And so um, that's what I think is the problem at the moment. Hostile interest, not disinterest in the gospel, is what's happened 15 years after that poster. That's, that's my, my take on it. Yeah, it's a pretty um, tremendous turn. Um, yeah, and it, it requires a certain approach and stance. Yeah. Um, I'm an Arsenal supporter. That's uh, the real football, which is probably played before empty stadiums. Well, I don't even know if it's been you played at the moment. You've got can the Premier League. But if you were playing in a, a home game and or your, your side was near at Arsenal Stadium, you'd go to the pub with all, and you'd be standing here on tables and yeah, 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 you know, all that sort of stuff. Not that I would ever do that. Well, you I of yeah, these riots. Yeah, that's kind right. of like the marketplace talk stuff. Yeah, a bit, yeah it's going to get ugly here in a minute. And. Um, <laughs> But if you, that was what you did during the home game. It's your place, your territory, your patch. You make a noise. But if you go to Manchester on the coach, you know, four hours up the road from London, and you go to Old Trafford, and you go to watch as an away, play, away supporter, you're quiet. Yeah. If you, you go gently, you, you're escorted, you don't stand in their pubs or their tables sort of making noise. Yeah. And it's ridiculous behaviour. Yeah, and it's the difference, I think, between an away game and a home game. We're mm. playing an away game now as Christians rather than a home game. Mm. And it changes the territory. It changes our stance towards the culture. We're no longer speaking from the centre of the culture out. Yeah. We're speaking more towards the margin of the culture. Yeah, so there's a passivity that takes place. Yeah, and it has to be, but it also, you don't want to be cowered by it. Mm. Uh, and... Finding that balance is what Christians are struggling to do. Yeah. And you only have to read social media to see it can swing one way or the other. Mm. And to walk a steady line of saying, I'm not, I know it's an away game, but I can still stand firm without yeah. being nasty or fearful is um, how can I do it joyously? That's the key, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, it's interesting because with the rise of the internet as well, um, tribalism, ideological silos, all these sorts of things that mm. um, it forces people into different categories really um, and uh, yeah just thinking that it's it's really easy to, to go uh, to either dumb down or yeah. uh, or to just be 
completely overwhelmed and not know what to do. Yeah, and I think you can find, if you want to find material uh, for confirmation bias, the internet's the place to go. And, you know, it's as simple as when you go to buy a book on Amazon. It says people who bought this book also like these books. And uh, I'll read those books. But you think, what if I had a list of people who bought this book never bought these six books? Maybe I, I need to balance myself by reading a little bit more widely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah I think it's great advice. Uh, okay, well, we, we were thinking we would take a, a break uh, just for five minutes, because uh, this, is, this is obviously a very strange, peculiar situation and format. Um, and maybe at home, it'd be good to just uh, get up and stretch your legs, just have a ponder about some of the stuff we've been talking about. Uh, send through some questions, uh, that's another possibility. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, let's, let's take let's take five, um, and then we'll uh, we'll resume. So we'll leave we'll leave the feed going, um, and then we'll um, yeah we'll come back in five minutes. And some questions are starting to come in, which is great. So uh, let's let's break the ice with that. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, so any chance to elaborate on being joyous in communicating the gospel? as an antidote to nastiness or being coward? Do you want me to ask that again? <laughs> any, yeah, any, any suggestions on how? So how do we do, how do we communicate the gospel in a joyful way yeah. as opposed to being nasty or cowardice? Yeah, I get that. Part of the problem at the, the stage is that the way language is used or the way language is, language has become the battleground in the culture. So there are certain terms and ideas that are themselves seen as nasty, but no matter how you bring them across joyously, they're part of the problem. So everything is a battle for language and what that word means or what that word does. So words themselves are now seen as weaponized to a level of, yeah, yeah. But, and the way we use them. Um, part of it has to be, and I think um, Mark says again, I'm indebted to um, some Friedman and his comment about being a non-anxious presence. Mm. Uh, a good time to be a non-anxious presence is now. But as we're sharing the gospel, I think, the very attitude has to be one of joy, and you just got to take the biblical narratives, uh, stories, and commands seriously, where it says, um, you know, do it with gentleness and respect. And we don't live in a culture where the default is gentleness and respect. And to become a person whose default is gentleness and respect, the gospel has to have some bearing on your own life. <laughs> if your uh, instinct is to flip the bird at the driver beside you, even if you don't, you know, you're not going to do that, you're thinking it, then perhaps you need to work in your own heart or get, ask God to work in your heart. Uh, so I think the, the terminologies that are weighted and loaded in Christianity can still be brought across gently. You're not responsible for um, how someone takes them, and I think we've got to break that link. How someone takes who you are by what you're saying, if you're saying it gently, is not ultimately your responsibility in that sense. Um, at one level, <laughs> you can't be rude, but you've got to actually believe that it's true, that the gospel is true, that Jesus has broken in through the, um, the imminent frame, that God does work, the transcendent God does come to us uh, to have any joy in the first place. So I think that's a long-term process, I think, yeah. that if you start to see the world not through the default of secularism, which we do, even as Christians, because there's no billboards on the road, the side of the road saying, remember, God is alive. You're, you're not driving down the road yeah, seeing yeah, <laughs> You're not driving down the road seeing those things. So you, you are steeped in that 
secular, social, imaginary, far more than you know. Mm. And I think to the workplace reach, is a classic example, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The workplace, everything's compartmentalized. It feels like you leave those things at home. How you bring them in, it, it's a challenge. So I think there are definite challenges in modern Western culture. But also I think knowing Jesus is a joy. Mm. And joy is something that seems remarkably absent in our culture at the moment. And now we're starting to take out the props. Mm. You take away the football, you take away the pleasure, you take away the entertainment, yep. you take away the, the trips overseas, and you're going, what's left? That's going to be an Don't worry about it this week. Mm. Worry about 20 weeks' time, if, as the Prime Minister said, this is a, at least a six-month gig. That would be interesting. Yeah, it would be uh, incredible to think about what the world will be like after all this. Yeah. Um, I suspect it would be good maybe towards the end we can back up with some uh, crazy predictions yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost uh, rapid discontinuous change. That's yes. all I'm going to say. Yeah, that's that's my right. It's got to be a hyperdrive. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's nuts. But it, it, there is, it certainly is saying something, though, isn't it, but that we come to this time of tremendous instability mm -hmm. and uh, it's not like this anxiety has come from nowhere. No. Um, it was but, there. Yeah, yeah. It, it was there in the background. It was there when people were going through hardship. It was there uh, with like almost like different things like I don't know, class war, buying property. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's so much anxiety about uh, going through school and mm -hmm. like, just so many things that uh, as a society we, we aren't dealing well with. And now this is kind of putting it really into focus, isn't it? Yeah, and I think we had our idea that our, my anxiety was about this or their anxiety was about that, and then something collectively comes that sweeps all those things off the front page. You go, oh, your anxiety's about this. Well, maybe your anxiety's about something even deeper than that, mm. that uh, this is showing us up as an anxious culture about anything, mm. about everything. It wouldn't matter what, because when things were good, we were anxious about things. Um, other things. Yeah, and that's not to say that uh, anxiety is always bad. Sometimes there are things that it's right to be anxious about, and yeah. certainly in this situation, it's like perfectly a perfectly re a reasonable response. But you don't want to be give into that. Yeah, you know, I mean, know. I was this morning uh, walking through Melbourne Airport, and it was eerie, empty, and I wanted to be home with my family, <laughs> and it just it had an odd feeling. So when Jesus says, uh, "Don't be anxious about the things that the pagans run after." To his crowd, he's he then lists them. He doesn't say, um, "Don't worry about you know uh, global warfare." That's probably something you should worry a little bit about. But if the pagans are running after, he said, uh, "What we shall eat, what we shall drink, what shall we shall wear, what we shall use for you know a sanitary product, <laughs> things like that." Um, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. The only way to get out of it anxious presence to a non-anxious presence is to know that your heavenly father knows that you need them and then you seek other things other than those things because they can be taken away in a shot yeah that's right so there's things like remembering treasure in heaven yes yeah, exactly yeah knowing where our home is yeah so and it feels like those are basic things to say but we need to keep saying to us yeah yeah yeah, and they're easy to fall away from the narrative when we get so sucked into the, the, yeah. the secular story yeah the imminent frame and yeah. the story it's telling yeah yeah absolutely um, we'll move into another question in a moment, but uh, also with, with uh, just saying through the break, like we were looking at some of the, just how it was going in terms of the technology and trying to identify bugs, that sort of thing. So uh, if this is lagging, uh, apologies for that. Uh, and also uh, just any sound issues, yeah, obviously uh, we want to try and work through these through the night and hopefully it'll get better uh, if, you, if you're experiencing any difficulties. 
but yeah, stay tuned. Um, let's let's move on to another question now. Given that this secular age is an anxious, fragmented one, mm -hmm. so let me just load up the full question here. There is, I imagine, a sense in which people are yearning for sure, dependable truths to anchor them, yet commitment to freedom and self-realisation means that they, at the same time, don't wish to hear or trust them. Mm -hmm. How do we speak uh, to people about this? Yeah, good, good question. So the idea of the individual and freedom sits in one hand versus things that are um, sort of these sureties in the other hand. And uh, you, you'd have to say, in one, one sense, that um, people see an anchor as something that's going to drag you to the bottom of the ocean and drain you. Mm. But an anchor is there to keep you in the right space in the middle. Keep you afloat. Keep you afloat and not drifting off. Mm. <laughs> so it's how you see an anchor. So uh, that's probably crucial to it. Um, the other thing you'd want to say is that the Bible does speak to the individual and does speak to your deepest desire. So it, Jamie Smith, who is a good... Uh, interpreter of Charles Taylor talks about the language of desire, obviously basing that on, a, on Augustine, but he says we are shaped more by what we love than by what we know. Now that might be overstating it and overeating the cake a little, but he, it's true that we are shaped by what we love and then what we love um, is a sort of a loop on that, that the more we love it, the more we you know, want to love it and things like that. Mm. So we are directed by the things we choose to put our lives into. And this is where I'd say you can only draw out of the bank what you've put in. And in critical times, if you put into just individualism, just my own self, just my own focus, self-fulfillment, then your reflex will be to grab those 16 packets of toilet paper, basically. <laughs> because it's your reflex, because that's who you're shaped to be. And if you've read Jonathan Haidt on any of this stuff as well, he talks about how your, your deep subterranean reflexes are who you are, even if you've got a surface over the top. Yeah, there's an importance about what you do, isn't it? It's not yeah. just like, sort of the liturgy as... Uh, a cultural as liturgy, yeah. yeah. It's, the, it's the practices, um, not just the theoretical knowledge. And, yeah. <laughs> and those practices embed themselves in your life as to, and shape the things you love. Mm. And, and that's where I think that our long-term practice of the Christian faith over time becomes the thing you love. Yeah, it could be dead orthodoxy as well, but there's a good chance that uh, you won't love Christianity and you won't love Jesus if you stop doing any of the things that Christians are supposed yeah. to do. That's why I'm supposed to keep meeting together, yeah. isn't it? Uh, do not neglect to meet together. Yeah. And all the more, as you see the day approaching, mm. there's that imminent transcendent thing. Yeah. Again. Yeah, and that's why as well you could say through all this, even though we'll be transitioning to digital, we know that that's, like, that's not the future of the church or something. No, like that's right. It's continue. eyeball to eyeball. We're yeah. incarnational. And uh, we're meant to be, you know, in, with each other in that sense. Yeah, you know? doing stuff together, yeah. side by side. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. Great. Um, we have another question here, uh, and then we'll, we'll continue moving yeah, sure. to the rest of it. Um, I'll completely leave this question to you. Suddenly all the intersectionality issues seem so trivial at the moment. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, that, that is a, a, a noted question, isn't it? Like, it, it, it does seem that all of the minor, or the major issues a few weeks ago are known minor issues. Mm. Partly that brings common humanity to everyone. Mm. So I think that's a good thing. There's common humanity. Uh, but there's also a sense that some of those things were luxuries of our culture that other cultures have not had the time or energy to think about because basically they're trying to uh, stave off death. <laughs> so when you're trying to stave off death, 
Yeah, and, uh, survival, there is a, you've got a sort of, a, there's a trade-off. Uh, and they're not the only issues that have fallen off the radar. Um, we're not talking too much about uh, the anti-discrimination legislation for Christian organisations either. So what's happened is that this has become the biggest issue and we realise life is fragile. And we're not talking about those other things. Maybe that's giving us a breather. That, that's not a bad way to look at it because it's very easy if what I've been talking about today can suck you into the culture wars very quickly. Mm. And it doesn't seem like we're getting sucked into the culture wars at the moment. The toilet roll wars in the aisle, perhaps. Yeah, but physical that, yeah. stuff. <laughs> but that's also showing something up about us. Mm. So we thought we were dealing with the difficult issues on intersectionality or anti-discrimination, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. That's sort of been subsumed to a common enemy at the moment. Mm. And um, that can be a good, that can be used for good or it could be used for bad. We know that common enemies can be used for bad, just as, yes. you know, you see racism do that. You see all those sort of, mm. fascism did that very strongly. Yeah. Um, but it does seem that this whole idea of, uh, life and it on the balance puts those other things in the shade mm. because they've shown up to be the luxuries of a culture that can afford to think about them. Yeah, it forces the story to change. It, it does, very strongly. Mm. Okay, uh, some of the other questions we'll put off till uh, yeah. further on, but uh, yeah, thanks very much for sending them through and yeah, keep uh, getting them in there as, uh, as questions come to you. Uh, but for now, let's, let's keep moving with the uh, the rest of the slide and everything like that. So if you've got that open, uh, let's let's keep you working through it together. One. Yeah, and we'll have a look at the next one. If you've got that, um, or the one after. Yes, this one here. Um, yeah, the, the, the key thing that I've thought about in the secular, secular, secular age issue was what does it look like to live in a world? How do we respond in a world where we've lost that transcendent part of us? And, this uh, painting that you may have on the script that you can see or behind me is um, a 1604 painting. It looks very modern, actually. It doesn't look like it was painted in 1604, 400 years ago. And it's by a Spanish painter called El Greco, which means the Greek. So he was Greek, but he lived in Spain. And it was an altarpiece above an altar. And it's uh, St. John holding his hands up like this, looking to uh, the heavens in ecstasy of worship. Uh, it's based on the, what, the opening of one of the seals, St. John's vision of the apocalypse. Mm. And the painting's in the Museum of Modern Art, but only part of it is, because they lost the first, the top five feet of the painting. Because it, off. Yeah, it got ripped off. <laughs> so ripped off, literally. And instead of St. John looking with ecstasy towards what was thought to have been a picture of the enthroned Christ, mm. you've got St. John sort of going, ah, no. There's nothing up there. Yeah. It's like he's worship. He's just gagging to worship something. And it's like Act 17 again. Yes. <laughs> well, there you go. And what he has is this completely imminent world. It's been ripped off. I think, and this is where I think the in is for the gospel, we live in that kind of ripped off world. That people, because I think they have a little switch on their back that says worshipper, people are looking to worship something, but in a imminent frame with a loss of the transcendence they've got their hands up but they're not quite sure where that's going yeah so that's just what's immediately around you what you can touch yeah what you can touch taste feel so the social imaginary is imminent their heart desire is transcendent mm. and there is something's going to have to give mm. something's going to have to give yeah and i think that 
picture to me just completely, it, it really frames to me um, the way that humans are working in the Western world at the moment, how they feel, how they operate. And I find that really, a really confronting painting, or the bit that's left, and a really confronting idea that we live in a ripped off world. Mm. Now, the, the next uh, slide we have is of um, David Foster Wallace from uh, uh, the, the great writer, who's now sadly dead, and he was speaking at Kenyon College uh, commencement service, which is all the bright young things who are living in this imminent world, all the uh, PR consultants of the future, the journalists, the marketers, all these people. Yeah, people who are, of influence. Yeah, people, the people who are culturally influencing the social imaginary. Mm. And he was speaking at the commencement service, and it's famous uh, what he says, because and many of you will know us, so you'll know the statement, but he says, uh, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. You might as well have quoted St Paul at that point. <laughs> the gods, the unknown gods. You see, he's saying to those people... Uh, a very good reason, as he goes on to say, to worship a god or transcendent thing is that any, anything else you worship will eat you alive. Worship money, you'll never feel like you've got enough. Worship looks and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And the average 20-year-old in that crowd, what? I can't look ugly. But that was 15 years ago, they're 35 now. <laughs> uh, time will, you know, and he says exactly that. And when you will die a million deaths, before they finally plant you, because you will never be able to find the satisfaction that you're looking for in this world. And they all give them a standing ovation because they go, that is so far removed from my experience, yeah. can't be true. Yeah. But it is true. And I think the worship aspect, he picks the eyes out of that. Mm. That in a secular world, we're saying, there's your worship and here's your real life. He's saying, doesn't work that way. Mm. That's not how it works. We're all worshipers. He brings the sacred back and puts them back together again. He says, even what you're doing in your so-called secular is deeply uh, connected to worship because you're built to worship. Mm. And you don't know what to worship because it's ripped off, but you're worshipping something. Yeah, you're saying this guy's not a Christian. No, he, he wasn't a Christian at all, but it was a very brave statement to make. Mm. And in a way that only a great writer has uh, plumbed the depths of the abyss to look into the eyes of horror and <laughs> as Nietzsche would say looking back up at you and um, but he calls it the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life mm. and I think we're going to go through some of those trenches at the moment most of us think we're living when you think about a, a motivational poster it's never you in a trench it's always you <laughs> on a mountaintop right that's right trial but most people are living the trench life day in day out that's the way life works yeah, and uh, he picks that to twenty to twenty-five year olds who think it's all motivational poster mountain. Yeah, if you're optimistic enough, yeah. positive thinking, you, you, yeah. you can do it. Yeah, and then you realise it's not true. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. So I guess like when books like Ecclesiastes, Ancient Wisdom, those those sorts of books coming, they they often speak quite well to. Oh, they do, and they're, they're great books to. Uh, you know, if you want your friends to read something. At the moment, the troubles they're going through, you could bring them to the Gospel of Mark or you could bring them to Ecclesiastes and they'll come running to you asking for the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, depends on uh, what you want them to go through. On top of the <laughs> That's right. We may not want to tip them over that edge. <laughs> <laughs> for sure.
Uh, all right, so uh, let's keep, keep keep building on some of this stuff um, with the increase of secularization and um, secularism and rejection of religion. Uh, it's led to this sense of loss, uh, often it's transcendence, uh, meaning, purpose, mm. those sorts of things. Uh, are there any other things that you can put your finger on, um, or maybe if you want to flesh that out a bit? Yeah, uh, the, where I go from here is say, and we talk called the talk a secular age, and, and why that secular culture is so hostile to the gospel. And that gets back to what David Foster Wallace said in that talk, that it is a gospel. And it's a competing gospel. It's not a neutral uh, issue. It's not a. It, it's actually a counter gospel. And so Jamie Smith also talks about if you go into the world to share, you know, uh, the good news of Jesus in your setting, and you're not coming to people who've got a God-shaped hole in their heart ready to hear that story. He says the people you come to are completely secular. They're Lives are taken up with projects and ideas and visions and goals that they have that are not engaged with anything to do with a transcendent understanding at all. If they have a transcendent understanding, it's compartmentalised to something else. It's not the day-to-day vision. And he says they don't have any sense that the secular lives they've constructed are missing a second floor, as if somehow there's anything above them. And... uh, those are the stairs in my house, so I love that photo. <laughs> but it's um, yes, it's my it's my uh, I worship. You know, it's, it's uh, my ripped off life. My worship. Yeah, you but, are what you love. Yeah, <laughs> you are what you love, and you build it. Um, but what he means is that, and this is where it came to a head in the sexual stuff. I think. Think back to two issues: uh, the Coopers debate mm. between Andrew Hasty and Tim Wilson. Yep. For those who don't know, um, they, they, were talk, they were talking about, um, we can have a good discussion about a topic that's difficult, and Tim Wilson and Andrew Hastie are both MPs. Andrew Hastie is a friend of mine, he's a Christian MP. Tim Wilson, uh, same party, both equal party, uh, gay uh, man, conservative gay man, and they were having a Cooper's beer together for a Cooper's ad. It was for a, something other than a Cooper's ad, but um, Cooper's had decided on it, and it all blew out of proportion because they were talking about same-sex marriage. Coopers took a bath on that one because the hostility that they would be allowed to have that discussion from many in the community almost shut one wing of Coopers down, and they had to come close. This was pre-plebiscite. Pre-plebiscite. And then you have the plebiscite, which was so hot on the topic. And Christians are going, but if we tell you that we love you, we just don't like the sexual things you're doing, and that's separate, you go, hang on. That's not how it works. They thought, and I think we thought, many Christians thought, that they could compartmentalise sexuality from the whole person. And in this age where the transcendent's being ripped off, where there's no second floor of a transcendent place in their lives, sexuality has become the gap filler for transcendence. Mm. Who you are sexually, what you do with your sex and your gender and those questions are who you are. They are the core of your being. So when all they did was they took ground floor, this is how I put it, if you're using that two-floor metaphor, they took ground floor projects and furniture and shifted it one floor up. Christians were talking about sexuality as if it was just ground floor furniture, and other people had pushed it one floor up Mm. and said it's actually the most transcendent thing about us 
is our sexuality, and you just kicked my transcendence down the road. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's where that connection of infinite frame and the imagining heaven, that's where it's all coming together. It's all it? come together there. Mm-hmm. And so that is the transcendent place now. What was once reserved for God and that transcendent understanding which gave you deep meaning and identity mm-hmm. has been replaced by core deep identity. And yeah. sexuality is seen as the deepest identity mark in the culture. Yeah. And a Christian ethic is always going to have to, to grapple with that. And it's the first question you're going to get asked if you're a Christian is not, do you think God created the world in six literal days or do you believe in dinosaurs or what is your view of the second coming? It's, what is your view about sexuality? It's just, it's, you can't get out of it. You can't fudge it. It's always the question. Yeah, it's the logical outcome as well of expressive individualism as well. It, it? it so is. It's, and that's, that's tapping into what we were talking about before. It, it is the ultimate expression of who I am and you can't say otherwise. Mm. And no institution can impose a view on me mm. in this post-institutional age as well. Mm. So that's where the heat came from. And Christians were either shocked or afraid or angry by that response. Because yeah. they hadn't picked a lot of them hadn't picked it. Mm. And I would see things on Facebook, oh, we only think that just forget it. Mm. Just just give it up. Because the language you, you're talking across purposes yeah. with what people are thinking about this thing. Yeah, and because of the, the language has shifted so much, mm. um, often words get hijacked and we mm. start to mean different things to different groups. Yes, and it, as I said before, it, it is a language battle. It's mm. a battle for who decides what those words mean. Mm. And I did a you know, postmodern lit degree in the 80s and I could see it coming, but I did not think it would be as widespread so quickly mm. into... But then again, everyone who did a postmodern lit degree or journalism or the arts became the cultural shapers of the last 30 years. Yeah, we we soaked it in and then we promulgated it to everyone else. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So it it takes certain forms, I think. And it's worked out a certain way too, but if you want to ask another question or something before we go on, we can can go on with this one. Yeah. um, yeah, well, let's break for another question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a few comments here as well. I've got a long one here, so let me just read it and then I'll yeah. try and uh, give the summary version. So the first part in brackets is about uh, being connected with Christian teachers and speaking at the conference last year. Uh, so it's connected with that. Uh, God values and uses a variety of artistic genres in the Bible, not just exposition. Our worldviews are heavily influenced by the secular arts, i.e. film, music, um, but the, the arts isn't always highly valued in school curriculum and churches. How can we reimagine our practice of the arts in churches and Christian schools to capture people's hearts for Jesus? Yeah, that's, that's a great good, question. Great question. I mean, part of the things... Not that the others weren't great. Yeah, but it, it, it is a pressing question and one that I get asked a lot. And, you know, writing is my thing. I did a, you know, a lit degree creative writing and journalism, and I, th- I found when I did theology that it, it seemed to disconnect at some level between the narr- narratival storytelling approach that I take to things. Not always. It, it was, it was a good, I enjoyed my time studying theology as well. But in one sense, not only did we, we self-selected out of a lot of the arts in, in one respect because it became hostile, mm-hmm. but it became hostile because we self-selected out of it in some respects. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think that Christians in particular need to 
occupy the arts, but it's a hard place to navigate. You've got a lot of cultural negotiation going on. How do I navigate that space? But it can be done, and it can be done well. And I think one of the biggest apologetics at the moment is beauty. Everyone's saying it's, you know, it's, not, just, it's not just truth, you know, didactic learning, or this is true. Beauty is a massive apologetic. And if you have seen the movie A Hidden Life, Terence Malick's latest movie, I went to see it at the pre-screening for all the journalists in Sydney, and hard-nosed as they would be, but it was pretty silent by the end of it. And that movie uh, was steeped in God. It was steeped in prayer, in suffering, in a Job-like experience. But I read a review of it that said... Before you do that, do you want to just quickly, in a nutshell, yeah. give an overview without spoilers? Yeah. Oh, yeah, an overview of the movie. Uh, without spoilers, very hard to do in a movie that's sort of based between 1939 and 1945. <laughs> yeah, you get the big picture. Uh, someone who, a, a guy living in the Austrian mountains who will not swear allegiance to Hitler and how he suffers for it and how his family suffers for it and how he stays true to something bigger than himself and even higher than the mountains in which they live. And... Uh, it's shocking and beautiful at the same time. And a secular reviewer said, see, his prayers didn't work. And I went, that's exactly the opposite of what happened. His prayers worked exactly the way that prayer works. Because if prayer is just so a genie in a bottle can get you out of a situation, then he wasn't praying. But that's not what prayer is. So I think, in, in, ironically, some people who are on the side of church have done the arts better than maybe people in mainstream. Mm. But we had to tap back into the arts because I think truth is, is a good apologetic, but beauty is such a strong apologetic at the moment, and we're lacking beauty. Mm. And um, there's a great lecture that City Bible Forum put on last year, the Smith Lecture. Mm. Anna McGann, uh, a great actor in Australia, who did a great uh, lecture on uh, whether Jesus was about, you know, was it propaganda or was it, was it art or what, what was it? And she did a beautiful job of making Jesus look amazing. <laughs> he is amazing, but she showcased him mm. in such a way. And I think we've got to get back into those creative... If it is yeah. a social imaginary that we're living in, yeah. then it's our imaginations that need shaped. And Christian schools have to take that up again. Mm. My favourite painter of all time is Rembrandt. Calvinist that he was. But the way he paints a human being and the way that the light shines on that face of those human beings is truly revealing and truly beautiful. And somehow we've got to um, give time and energy to that and not and say that that can express theology truly. Mm. Um, and find our writers and encourage them. And uh, it's hard enough to do when times are good, mm. but when money drains away, um, perhaps, though, beauty and truth um, together will be the thing that gets a lot us out of the ugly scenes we've seen in the last few weeks. Yeah, definitely. I think there's there's real power in stories. Yeah. And um, I think as well, uh, a point that Os Guinness makes in his book, Fool's Talk, is uh, about how uh, everyone's on this uh, diversion path, basically, finding finding ways to distract themselves mm. uh, away from the, the uncomfortable questions. Mm -hmm. um, but in the creative space, you force questions in a subversive way yeah. uh, that engages in a way that just a, a monologue or a, a 
a, gospel, a basic gospel presentation never will. Yeah, so and, and we, we gave that up a little bit as the arts scene became much more secular mm -hmm. and hostile to Christianity. Um, I still, I'm old enough to remember when Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ came out and Christians were picketing the um, theatres so it shouldn't be shown. And Scorsese was nonplussed because he said, and I've heard it in an interview say, because um, the poor premise is that Jesus is on the cross and he has the temptation to come off the cross mm -hmm. and marry Mary Magdalene and have children. And in the end, 70 AD and the fall of Jerusalem happens anyway. <laughs> And he regrets it. But Scorsese makes this amazing point. I could never figure out why Christians were so against this movie. Because the biggest temptations we face are not bad things. They're good things, but not the best things. And Jesus was presented with a good thing. A family. Loving children. Safe, stable family life. And it would have been the biggest temptation. Because not too dissimilar from uh, Satan's temptation. Yeah, exactly. It? It's something good. But it's not what God wanted. He said, I could never understand why Christians thought that was such a bad thing. And I thought, wow, we should be telling those stories. <laughs> well, he is. You know, he's, he's from a Catholic framework, so beauty is a big issue with him yeah. and how beauty is put together in movies. So uh, we've got to refine that, I think. Yeah, and obviously uh, Christian history is littered with wonderful writers that are still... Oh, classic novelist that you yeah. pick up today. Yeah, exactly. And you read all the Russians. They're all steeped in a Christian framework. Dostoevsky, all, all those writers. Uh, yeah, Tolstoy. Yeah, yeah, they're incredible. But uh, the other thing is, I, I want to say beauty because in a sense that beauty is a, a strong apologetic for a lot of things. And if we go to the next slide on this, uh, there's a picture of... Um, um, this is Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, also known beforehand as Bruce Jenner. And the aesthetic of beauty, the aesthetic, is now seen as the strongest plausibility structure in our culture, aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And so there is Caitlyn Jenner looking beautiful, um, who was Bruce Jenner, and the fact that she, in, he, in their sexuality, has discovered themselves, their mm -hmm. true self, oh, their transcendent self. Mm -hmm. And in Vice magazine they had this statement that Every generation has a moment that changes things. For the boomers, it was landing on the moon. Uh, for my ex-gen generation, it was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And now this, for millennials, it's Caitlyn Jenner. Wow. It went from searching for truth out there to searching for truth across there on the planet, freedom, to searching for truth and freedom in there. <laughs> yeah, so it just shrinks it in. It shrunk everything down. Mm. And the problem with that, of course, is that Bruce, although she, he, as Caitlin, looks beautiful in that photo, says, I still miss the old Bruce. <laughs> There's something about this that has not satisfied. And I think if we can tell good stories about how these things satisfy for a while, but they don't complete us. Mm. Because Bruce, it doesn't matter how deep Caitlin Jenner digs, into herself to find herself. That's not where true meaning will ultimately lie. Yeah. And I think even Caitlyn Jenner knows that. Yeah, and it's that um, conflating first and second laws. Yes, it is. It's conflating the, the sacredness. It's sort of pushing all that ground floor furniture up to a transcendent level, saying that's where all meaning has got to be found because mm -hmm. there's nothing else. Yeah. If, if I can find that authentic self. Yeah. Um, 
than the other. But you keep digging, because mm. you know, uh, it's hard to find the authentic self because it's not there. You may, and you may not like what you find anyway. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and interesting, just as Christians, to think about that, um, the level to which we adopt individualism uh, in, in culture. Yeah. Um, because you, uh, you, can, you can make argues, arguments about the, the nature of church and corporate and community and all these sorts of things. So well, this will test us the next few months mm. as to whether we're individualistic as our default or whether we want community. Mm. And that, that's going to prove it, I think. Mm. Uh, and the churches struggle with this. So sexuality issues also um, sort of blown the church apart a little bit as well because our default, I still think, is individualism. Mm. Even though we say we're all about community. Um, and you get Josh Harris, for example, and I've got the slide there, yeah. where Josh Harris, who was Christian and wrote, I kissed daddy goodbye, eventually kissed Christianity goodbye. And his first Instagram photo after his saying it, that he left, it was this one, which for me looks like Adam on the verge of a new creation, because it's a salvation, it's, it's a gospel salvation story. It's not that what he's believing is simply not a gospel, it is a gospel. It's a good news story of salvation. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was lost, but now I am found. Mm. And even in the church, that was a very attractive narrative to many people. But he was finally being true to himself. Mm. But the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says he's misguided and blind about himself at this point. Mm. But he presents himself as a new Adam, uh, suitably bald, by the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, looking at bald people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> bald or bearded, and he's looking out in the new creation. I don't think that photo was a mistake. He advertises himself as a marketing person now. He, that's full-blown full marketing there. The, and do you see it? Aesthetics. Yeah. Truth is supposed to be linked with beauty. Mm. But if you can link beauty to untruth, you're on the winner. <laughs> yeah. It's a very different deconversion story to, say, um, the, the popular atheist ones that you were here, like, say, Richard Dawkins yes. or Christopher Hitchens. Very different. And the other thing too about the social imaginary, if in 1500 you did that and left Jesus behind, where do you go? You go up to a cave by yourself to live a lonesome life. Yeah, with a crow or something. Yeah, but now you're embraced by a bigger, more colourful, even more aesthetically beautiful community because mm. it's pitted against the old, tired Christian community. Yeah. You've got this colourful, beautiful, post-Christian, pansexual community to join. And will always be a tribe to pull back up your Exactly. Your Not in 1500. It was no. lonely. <laughs> now there's an alternative. And that's why there's great pressure on Christians to say, we want to show something that's both true and beautiful to you. Mm. In, not necessarily just in aesthetics, but deeply beautiful. Yeah. And just the ease to which that diversion can take place, um, that where you can find those alternative communities. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Whereas in the past, obviously... Pretty hard to ignore the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Very hard, very hard. But now there is a whole construct. Uh, there's a social imaginary that you can join that gives that has deep plausibility outside of the church. Mm. Not true in 1500. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's tap into this a bit more. Um, uh, why does secularism not work? So with these stories here, um, not to pick on Josh Harris or anything, no. but um, these sorts of stories... Mm. Uh, where do they usually end up? Like, do you, do you think all, like it's just going to be this glorious life now, or are these sorts yeah. of stories? Um, what, what, what do they reveal about a person? Yeah, know? that's true. Well, a couple of things I'd say. People say, "Can you be happy without God?" I said, "Deliriously so," and then you'll die. 
So <laughs> I think the fear of death still sits on everyone, and we've seen that recently. Um, that I think the cracks are starting to appear in the story, in the narrative. No matter how well those people from Kenyon College, who David Foster Wallace spoke to, curate and showcase a beautiful world to us of post-Christian individualism in the ads and the products they sell, what are the two, in a hyper-individualistic world, two of the biggest problems we have are loneliness and anxiety. Yeah. And you think, hang on, that shouldn't make sense. Mm. There's something going wrong. There's a glitch in the matrix, to really go back a few years, that why are there cracks in that sky? It feels like something isn't working. Mm. And as I said, my wife is a clinical psychologist. It's only in this current uh, crisis when some people are staying away because they're 70 or you know they're immune compromised that she's been able to get her wait list down from six to eight weeks mm -hmm. or eight to six weeks because people are anxious yeah. and lonely and they're coming anyway even before this happened. Yeah. So the cracks are starting to appear. And I think when you, um, there's a great picture, the next one of Notre Dame uh, Cathedral in that most secular of all countries, France, when uh, it burnt down, it felt like they didn't just lose something historical, but they'd lost a link with something transcendent. Yes. And what did the young French come out to do? Pray in the streets. That's amazing. Yeah. The most secular country, the instinct was hundreds of French young people out praying in the streets. That's huge. Yeah. It, it shows up John Lennon. It's easy if you try. No, it's not. And it only takes one burning spire to fall off the top of that Notre Dame and crush a hole through that imminent frame and break a hole open in the thing and transcendence starts to come back in again. Yeah. And people are going, there must be something more. Yeah, there's something very powerful about that. The visual loss. The visual oh, yeah, I think that visual loss, because it was beauty. Yeah. Uh, and history. history and beauty that we could not replicate mm. in that way. Mm. Uh, a link to something more than us. Yeah. And I think it was a big, a big moment. Yeah, maybe it's an interesting, I mean, this, this could be controversial, but um, an interesting comparison would, could be the, the towers of the 9-11. Yes. The, the different things that they represent. That is interesting too, because the first thought was that we're going to build this up again. And then everyone was in church for a while, <laughs> as I say. But in one sense, we, uh, our, our default was, yeah, we're going to build those up again. And really, as Christians, we should be saying, well, they are, um, while they are important commercial buildings, and why lots of people died was terrible, mm. they were towers to mammon in many respects. Mm. Um, this was something different. This was built to the glory of God, and that was built to the glory of humans. Mm. There's no way around that. So the response to Notre Dame was a grief despite the lack of loss of life. Yes. Um, something deeper was lost. I think. Mm. And uh, I think that was a, a critical moment, to be honest, mm. uh, just showing it up. And I think that's where those cracks, wherever those cracks are, I think Christians have an opportunity to speak into them. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying loneliness, anxiety, those are the cracks in this well, beautiful, sort of glittering uh, world that's social imaginary because it's not working. Mm. And um, uh, Douglas Murray's book, The Madness of Crowds, uh, he picks up on that. Now, Douglas Murray, gay atheist, uh, conservative, brilliant British writer, and he speaks about the 
high levels of confusion and anger in our culture, mm. and especially in our cancel culture where you just shot down for nothing. And I was speaking at, um, oh, I was not speaking, I was speaking to someone who works for a, an organisation that goes into schools with videos uh, to conversation starters. Mm. And she, uh, she was asking me for advice about how to write the scripts. But I said to her, what are the three questions that students ask? She said, well, we have surveys. And the three questions people ask are uh, students, uh, what uh, meaning, uh, purpose in life, what am I here for? Mm. Meaning and identity, who am I? What mm. am I here for, who am I? And the third one, drum roll, uh, how can I be forgiven? I went, what? <laughs> I went, students ask that? She said, yes, because they live in a culture where if you fall through the cracks, you're, you're done. It's cancel culture. And Douglas Murray says something profound in his book that we live in a culture where we don't know where we can get redemption. We don't know who would help us if we fell through. Yeah. It's all that's left to us is to be defined by our worst joke. Hello, you know, internet can <laughs> drag anything up <laughs> on you. And we don't know where we could go or who could possibly give us any hope except for fiery denunciation. Mm. You go, wow, yeah. I know who could. I know someone who give you redemption. Yeah. If that question is the third question always, mm. then that's critical. Already they're saying, I don't know who could give me forgiveness. And we go, well, I do. Mm. And we can model that forgiveness to you as well. Yeah. That's part of our story. Yeah. What does forgiveness look like? And I've found, even when I've been writing and I write narrative, stories rather than just theological or cultural points mm. the response is much is exponentially much more than what i than anything else i ever write people respond to the story of forgiveness yeah. or the story of kindness far more than they respond to a point abstract, abstract yeah oh, about a sexual age or this or that or the other tells me something yeah that's something we can get a lot better at, isn't it? Yeah, and, we, and maybe we need to concentrate on that a lot more mm. and find the people that do it and honour them. Mm. And say, not just say, oh, well, that's a, a side issue. That could be the main game. Mm. And so I think people are telling better stories than even we are. Mm. So the cracks have started to appear. And maybe I'll close this bit on the story, if I could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do that. And, yeah, uh, yeah. we can maybe ask more questions. But yeah, we're getting close to time, but uh, yeah, yeah. We, we might get one or two questions. Yeah. Again. Um, in the Truman Show, the movie about him being set in this imminent frame of a studio that he's lived in his whole life in this town. Um, and he, uh, he has everything laid on tap because he's the star of his own show. Mm. <laughs> Doesn't know it, but he's the star of his own show in this bubble, this big TV set, and everyone's watching him. And he still feels there's something more. Mm. And eventually he gets to sail across the water, which he'd been trained to be scared of. And he... He eventually gets there and he bangs his boat into the side of the TV set, which he had no idea was there, but in his mind he must have been thinking, I'm not living true life. And the moment of recognition that there's something more beyond what he thinks, what he's already seen in his life, is when he touches the wall of the set and he just gasps. He goes, there's more truth and reality beyond what I thought. That's the moment where people are going, there's got to be something more. And when they go, they touch it, they go, that changes everything. And it does, it breaks the spell of the, of the imminent frame. Mm. Only God can do that by a spirit. Mm. But we, as we 
narrate the stories and show those things can be the conduit through which God is going to do that. But when he touches that, he goes, there's something more. I think that's what people are at at the moment. And we've got a good opportunity to, to, to share that. Yeah, absolutely, especially in these times. In these times, indeed. Yeah. Well, um, I think that will wrap us up for the content stuff. We have five minutes now. Um, yeah, we were listed to go a bit longer to 9.30 initially. Um, but I've, I think with it being a streaming thing, um, yeah, it's a different, that's right, a different experience being on yeah. screen than live. So let's, let's finish up at nine, um, which will give us room for, for one to two questions, I reckon, now. Mm-hmm. So um, thanks very much for sending the questions in. There's a lot of good ones here to choose from. Let me just have a moment to choose some. A few comments as well. Let's go to this one. So, actually, no, I found another one. So let's uh, let's think of some practical examples. Um, when should I pretend I didn't hear a comment in a staff room or something? So, I guess this goes back to this is yeah. earlier on uh, thinking about different language and different groups and tribalism and all that sort of stuff where the, the language is different and it's. Uh, is there a need to make our position clear in these particular issues that come up? Or is there, like, is silence an adequate thing or mm. doing something altogether, altogether different? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a time and a place to make a position clear. It isn't every time and every place. Mm. Um, but I do think when it's on the line you can. Um, the art of cultural negotiation. Uh, when should I say something, when should I not? I think part of what we could do uh, is if we've got a fellow Christian or someone with a different perspective in the workplace who is being razzed on by someone, mm. defend them before you defend yourself. Mm. So it's important to stand up for the truth, but to stand up for the truth because it's costing someone else uh, something and you want to defend them rather than this is about me, mm. it's quite powerful. Because then people go, well, why are you defending them? Well, I believe that as well, but, you know, did you see how they responded to you? That way you're actually slightly triangling the conversation because you're not going to that person and going, you had this against me. It could be, actually, you've got to think about that. Mm. And I think that is one way to diffuse uh, the straight, you know, because everyone's expecting you to come like this. Yeah. Um, but I also think that a non-anxious presence over time in the workplace uh, and being, if you're a godly person in the workplace, somehow you garner moral authority in an interesting mm. way over time. Yes. That you become someone that people go to, mm. to ask something. If they razz on you all the time and then something happens in their life that's really hard, mm. you might be the first person they come to. Yes. Now you can say things in the workplace, I don't think you should be shut down, but I think how we do it has to be much more, um, negotiated in one sense. Think about what's this workplace, what's it asking of me, uh, what do I go to the wall for, and what don't I? Yeah, and there's a sense in which you don't want to be known just for your views, do you? You want to be known as the person first, and then... Yeah, and you don't want to be known as the jerk at work. Yes. You do not. Yeah, that's right. You do not. So there's a sense in playing the long game, isn't there? (laughs) And that will take wisdom in different situations, discernment, uh, advice from your pastor or friends. And also, that most people in the workplace don't want conflict. Mm. It's not like there might be one person who's a cultural warrior who's, you know, got every 
uh, ideology under the sun for whatever day of the, the week it is. Mm. But most people aren't like that. Mm. And, most, and there will be many people who agree with you quietly, but they just want to keep their heads down. Yeah. And I think just play the long game. Yeah. And when you need to be brave, be brave. But you don't have to say everything. Because yeah. people will quietly come up to you and go, ah, I never thought about that. And that person, I don't agree with them, but I wouldn't say that to them. Well, I don't agree with you, but I could say it to you. <laughs> and that, when you're someone who they can disagree with and feel safe, that's a great place to be. Yeah, yeah, that should be the, the goal. That should place. be the goal, I think. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Well, we're pretty much on nine o'clock, so uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Yeah. Um, maybe would you like to pray for us, Steve? Yeah. And then I'll, I'll give some concluding notes. Yeah, sure, I'll pray for us. Mm. Father God, we thank you that uh, you, in the Lord Jesus, uh, you sent the Lord Jesus to step into our world, that uh, the one who uh, knows uh, the Father and uh, knows uh, what it's like to dwell in great glory came to this earth, broke through the dome, so to speak, came to us and brings us to a place that, um, of uh, being seated in heavenly places with him. We, we think that's amazing that you've broken through that and you've given us a hope and a, uh, some, and a joy that's beyond anything that this world can offer or could take away. We realise that in these times when everyone is rushing around and fearful and anxious that we do not have to worry about the things that the rest of the world is worried about, but we can seek your kingdom first and you will add the things to us that we need. We pray for people in the workplace, we pray for people watching who have got friends that they are sharing the gospel with or family members, that they would do so in gentleness and with the confidence that your Holy Spirit will give them the words to say as they speak and that their lives can be a shining example uh, to others of the grace of God. Please give us a desire for truth, but also a desire for the beauty that truth, uh, that springs forth from that truth, that makes that truth look even better. Help us to live such lives like that, that it looks both beautiful and true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Great. So uh, just to, to wrap up, thanks so much again for, for joining us, streaming, uh, yeah, using, your, using the great technology we have uh, to come together as an online community. Um, it's, yeah, as we've talked about, it's a weird time, uh, pretty unprecedented, unprecedented time. So we'll all get through this together. Uh, but let's do it by having great conversations, having uh, meaningful distractions, talks about uh, yeah, hope amongst the chaos, I guess. Uh, and ways you can do that is connect with City Bible Forum and Third Space. Uh, we're going to be having a lot of content coming out online soon, uh, and it'll be in a number of formats, whether that's blogs, videos, podcasts, all sorts of things. Um, so you can check out the websites. Uh, you can like our Facebook pages. That will have uh, a number of resources coming up on there. Uh, and, and can keep you in the loop of different stuff we're going to try. Uh, and then many of you would have signed up to our email list as well. If you didn't do that, uh, you can just contact Hobart at citybibleforum.org if that's where you're streaming from, uh, or just go on the website and uh, there are some submission forms there that you can just request to get put on a, a mailing list near you. Uh, but I think that's just about it for, for tonight. So thanks very much to Steve Great for coming down to Hobart. Uh, the, the timing has worked out impeccably with uh, just changing every day and it's yeah. just been uh, very fortuitous that you got here today and not tomorrow, not tomorrow. yeah <laughs> that's right so we're, 
we're very glad that that's worked out that way. Uh, yeah, I, I'm Aaron, and uh, yeah, we, we hope when all this blows over uh, and throughout this time that uh, you can continue to uh, love your neighbour, support your church, encourage your pastor, pray for them, uh, and think about those around you. Uh, and yeah, once it's done, get, we'll get back into sharing the gospel together however we can. In Jesus. Uh, yeah, we want to be doing that. Uh, with the, the hope of the gospel and remembering Jesus every day. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for tuning in and uh, hopefully we can do it again. It'll probably be solo from now on. <laughs> I saw uh, Stephen Colbert doing his from the bath if you're into American talk shows. Yeah. So yeah, we could be going in that direction. America's about one week ahead of us, but uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Thanks again and enjoy the rest of your night and stay tuned for more City Bible Forum and Thursday's content. Thanks very much.